Hey, welcome to this episode of Light 'em Up. We take a deep dive on the criminal justice system, crime scene investigation, and leadership. We enlighten, educate, and empower others with the truth. Like it or not, the truth disturbs, the truth divides, but ultimately, the truth delivers. Hey, I'm your host, Phil Rizzo. I'm the principal owner of Rizzo's Protective Group. We are a high-risk security consulting firm headquartered out of Akron, Ohio, and with offices in the Bronx, New York, and Cerro Alto, the Dominican Republic. Hey, as we put the ball on the tee to line things up for kickoff, we speak life, health, and prosperity over each and every one of you, and we want to thank you for joining us tonight on this episode of Light 'Em Up. We shine the light of the truth on eyewitness mistaken identifications. Mistaken identifications in a criminal justice setting are a leading factor in wrongful convictions, especially for individuals of color. Note well this fact. African Americans make up only 13% of the U.S. population, but represent a majority of innocent defendants wrongfully convicted of crimes and later exonerated. Judging from exonerations, innocent black people are about seven times more likely to be victims of mistaken identifications and convicted of murder than innocent white people. All told, at the recording of this episode of Light 'em Up, the National Registry of Exonerations has recorded 2,970 exonerations in the United States from 1989 through the end of 2021, and 47% of them were persons of color. To date, those 2021 numbers have increased. Keep ever-present in mind the fact that an eyewitness could be 100% confident and still be 100% wrong. Here's a case in point. Do you remember the movie My Cousin Vinny starring Joe Pesci and Marissa Tomei? I love, love, love that movie. (laughs) That movie cracks me up. The prosecutor in the movie stated in open court that the evidence is going to show that the two defendants were seen entering the Sack of Suds convenience store in Wazoo City and that minutes after they entered the Sack of Suds, a gunshot was heard by three eyewitnesses. And those three eyewitnesses were certain that Billy Gambini, played by Ralph Macchio, and Stan Rothstein, played by Mitchell Whitfield, were the culprits and guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Thankfully, that was just a movie. The tragic reality is that this happens every day in real life all across the United States to real people, not actors in a movie. Mistaken eyewitness identifications contribute to approximately 70% of the 551 wrongful convictions in the United States overturned by post-conviction DNA evidence. They are the leading cause of wrongful convictions in sexual assault and robbery cases. In the state of Louisiana, 20 out of 22 That's right, 90% of the cases of exonerated individuals were convicted and sentenced based off of mistaken identity. Of the DNA exonerations that involved mistaken eyewitness identifications, two of these men were sentenced to death. There's no coming back from that. In 17 non-DNA Louisiana exonerations, innocent men were sentenced to life in prison due to mistaken eyewitness identifications. People wrongfully convicted are exonerated for a variety of reasons. Official misconduct, perjury, 
false forensic evidence, false confessions. But by far, the single greatest cause of wrongful convictions nationwide in the U.S. playing a role in 72% of convictions overturned through DNA testing is eyewitness error. As the Department of Sociology at Western Michigan University pointed out, 30 years of strong social science research has proven that eyewitness identification is often unreliable. Research shows that the human mind is not like a tape recorder. We neither record events exactly as we see them, nor recall them like a tape that has been rewound. Instead, eyewitness memory is like any other evidence at a crime scene. It must be preserved carefully and retrieved methodically, or it can become contaminated. You might think that eyewitness mistaken identification is a rare occurrence, but it happens more than one might think. In 2021, exonerees lost an average of 11.5 years to wrongful imprisonment for crimes they did not commit. We are currently in the year 2022. A total of 1,849 years combined have been lost in total for 161 exonerations to date. Here at Light 'em Up, our search for the truth shows little signs of slowing and no sign of ending. In a time of division, facts unite. Hey, subscribe to our YouTube channel at Rizzo's Protective Group. The criminal justice system is supposed to have several different procedural safeguards to protect defendants from erroneous conviction resulting from mistaken eyewitness identification. Let's be clear in our mission at the outset. Tonight, we'll examine the process. Our mission is to better understand the factors that influence eyewitness identification and how to best protect suspects and defendants from the consequences of mistaken eyewitness identification. We have a lot of ground to cover in a short period of time. Let's push forward and dig deeper. Eyewitness identification is generally one of two types. A person or persons viewing an actual crime scene as a crime is taking place and a suspect identification once an arrest has been made. Let's focus first on the latter. Just what is an in-custody eyewitness lineup? A lineup is a well-accepted investigatory procedure carried out by law enforcement officers. We have all seen police lineups from our favorite TV police dramas. A lineup is a relatively formalized procedure wherein a suspect who is generally already in custody is placed among a group of other persons whose general appearance resembles the suspect, or at least it should. A person of interest with the height of actor, say for example, Peter Dinklage of Cyrano de Bergerac fame, who is 4 feet 5 inches tall, shouldn't be included in a lineup of suspects the height of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar that is 7 feet 2 inches tall. In the lineup, if conducted legally, you're familiar with the scene. One or more crime suspects, along with a few other people who look vaguely like the suspect or suspects, are ushered into a room in the police station. Behind the one-way mirrored glass in a darkened room, unseen to the people assembled in the lineup, the victim or an eyewitness is asked to identify the perpetrator. In a police lineup, there may be the suspect, along with several fillers, or foils, as they're referred to, people of similar height, build, and complexion who may be prisoners, actors, police officers, or volunteers, stand side by side, both facing and in profile. The lineup administrator gives those in the lineup a series of directives. Step forward, turn to the right, turn to the left, 
step backwards. Before the detective knocks on the window and lifts the shade or perhaps the screen so that the witness can view the suspects, there's crucial information that should be conveyed to the eyewitness prior to the viewing of the lineup. The witness is then asked whether he can identify the perpetrator of the crime. The result is essentially a test of the reliability of the witness's identification. Prior to 1967, there were no safeguards or guardrails whatsoever to the right to have the presence of counsel at an in-custody lineup. It was pretty much the wild, wild west. The right to have an attorney present at an in-custody lineup wasn't constitutionally established until 1967 in the case of the United States v. Wade. Several weeks after Billy Joe Wade's indictment for bank robbery and conspiracy, without notice to his appointed counsel, was placed in a lineup in which each person wore strips of tape on his face, as the robber allegedly had done, and, on direction, repeated words like those the robber allegedly had used. Put the money in the bag, etc. Two bank employees identified Wade as the robber. At the trial, when asked if the robber was in the courtroom, they identified Wade. On cross-examination, Wade's attorney established that the prior lineup had taken place and that the witnesses had identified Wade as the robber. His attorney then filed a motion for judgment of acquittal, or, alternatively, to strike the courtroom identifications, urging that the conduct of the lineup violated his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination and his Sixth Amendment right to counsel. The trial court denied the motions, and the respondent was convicted. The Court of Appeals reversed, holding that though there was no Fifth Amendment deprivation, the absence of counsel at the lineup denied Wade his right to counsel under the Sixth Amendment and required the grant of a new trial, at which the in-court identifications of those who had made lineup identifications would be excluded. In a nutshell, specifically in U.S. v. Wade, that's W-A-D-E, the court held that a defendant is entitled to the presence of a defense counsel when the defendant must appear in a police lineup. Let's take a moment to hear some of the audio from the original 1967 Supreme Court argument in U.S. v. Wade. No, number 334. Uh, United States Petitioner versus Billy Joe Wade. May it please the court, this case comes here on petition for government's petition for a writ of certiorari to the Fifth Circuit, which refers respondent's conviction for bank robbery because it held his Sixth Amendment right to counsel had been violated in a lineup. This is a lineup which was held after indictment. As a matter of fact, the respondent was arrested after indictment. And uh, after counsel had been appointed for him, without notification to counsel. It does not appear of record, but the United States Attorney, in the argument before the Court of Appeals, conceded that at the lineup, the persons in the lineup, I think there were six of them, that doesn't appear of record either, were asked 
to say some words like put the money in this bag. The Court of Appeals reversed the conviction holding first that the fact alone that counsel had not been notified of the decision to conduct a lineup was a violation of the Sixth Amendment right to counsel for the defense. And further, that because of this violation, the witnesses, the victims of the robbery, should not have been allowed to identify the defendant, the respondent in court at all. This despite the fact that the record shows they had quite a lot of time, ample time, to observe him at the trial. Despite the fact that the record shows that at least one of them had picked out his photograph before the lineup, before his arrest. And despite the fact that the government on its own made no attempt to make affirmative use of the fact that the defendant had been identified at a lineup, but that the whole question of the lineup was introduced into the case by the defense. It's the government's position that the court was wrong on both aspects of its decision, and that's why we brought the case here. By both aspects, I want to be sure. Well, one, in holding that there was a violation of the Sixth Amendment right to count. And secondly, in the sanctions. Secondly, in the sanctions that it imposed. Right. On the Sixth Amendment question, in our view, the key to the problem is that by a lineup, what the government is really seeking is to find out what a witness knows. The witness, the victims of the robbery, not what the defendant knows. It really is asking this question. Mr. Witness, can you identify this man? Now, the reason you use the defendant instead of using photographs is because it's better. You get better testimony. If somebody looks at the real thing, then if he looks at a photograph. And the reason you use a lineup is that it's fairer. If you have him look at six people, that's the same way. Then if he just looks at one person. But the question that you're asking is the question of the witness. Do you recognize him? And this is true whether it's before indictment or after indictment. Now, the most frequent use of a lineup, of course, is when arrest is made shortly after the crime. It's very frequent in daytime crimes, robberies, holdups, so on. You get the victim. Maybe the robbery's been at night or the holdup's at night, and you try to get him identified quickly so that it's a technique for helping the police know they've got the right man. Now, this case, in that sense, is atypical. But even in this situation, it's the same question because what happened here was that two accomplices were caught in another bank robbery. And they subsequently identified, they told their story about this bank robbery, and 
named, responded as a person who had gone into the bag. Now, their stories checked out in many details, as is shown from the transcript, which we have isn't printed here. But there's a long record that shows that the stories, after all the preparations and so forth, were corroborated in quite uh, considerable detail. But only one man went into the bag. They named respondent as that man. Well, obviously, it was important, both from the point of view of trial preparation and both from the point of assurance that you really did have the right man, uh, that the victims who were in the bank, the only people in the bank when he was there, say whether they could identify him or not. And so although it was after indictment, it served an identification purpose because those were the two people who had actually seen him at the time. Now, I know you said this, but uh, the response was asked the Who asked the question? What was the question? What was the answer? As I understand it, you know, there's no record of this at all. Uh, it, the United States Attorney exceeded the argument, and as, as we've gotten the facts as far as we can, as I understand it, there were six people at the lineup, all dressed alike, and they were told, each told to say the same thing, put the money in the bag. Oh, right. Uh, the police. Uh, I, well, there were some local police, and there was an FBI agent who uh, were responsible for the lineup. This was, uh, it was, this was, the United States Attorney as such did not participate in the lineup. I understand about the record. This was not testified to at the trial? No, this was not testified to at the trial. All that happened at the trial was the first witness got up. She was the cashier of the bank. She was the one whom uh, the defendant first approached. And she testified to the circumstances of the robbery, that a man came in. She and she was at the cashier's desk about 10 feet away from the entrance. She was alone. That a man came in and said, I have a check of cash. And she said, okay, come here. And that she looked up. And he had a gun pointed at her. And then he walked right close to her and said, this is a hold-up, and get the money. And then she walked back to the vault where the manager was. And she said, Mr. Gray, we're being robbed. And uh, so the uh, robber said, put the money. He handed her a pillowcase. said, put the money in here. And they did. They put the money in. And then she, they both started to go out. And the robber said, no. Uh, you stay back there, but Mr. Gray, well, you can call him Gray, but you come with me. And uh, I want the money that's out front. And then he said to Mr. Gray, uh, if you do what you're told, you won't get hurt. And so Mr. Gray went around and took the money in front. And then uh, the man left, and one of the accomplices was driving a getaway car. Presence of counsel is required to minimize the likelihood of misidentifications and to enable counsel to intelligently challenge subsequent identification testimony. A person has a Sixth Amendment right to counsel at a lineup undertaken at or after initiation of adversary criminal proceedings, whether by way of formal charge, preliminary hearing, indictment, information, or arraignment. This was a landmark decision by the Supreme Court, considering other traditional safeguards such as 
simply the opportunity to cross-examine witnesses and a basic instruction from judges to juries have proven over the years to not be error-proof and have far too often proven to be ineffective safeguards against mistaken eyewitness identification, regardless of whether it originates in the witnessing of a crime or in a police lineup. The criminal justice system recognizes clearly that eyewitness testimony in general and eyewitness identification in particular play profoundly important roles in the apprehension of offenders, the prosecution of those offenders, and adjudication of criminal trials. Police officers and detectives rely heavily on eyewitness testimony in their initial investigation of a crime. Eyewitness identifications from photo spreads and lineups are everyday occurrences and essential to the process. And the eyewitness is probably the single most common form of witness in most criminal trials. The criminal justice system also acknowledges the tremendous influence that eyewitnesses have on trial outcomes. Prosecutors typically have no hesitation whatsoever to put an eyewitness on the witness stand. They do so without delay, as a default, reflexively as well. Having an eyewitness testify that he or she saw the suspect commit the crime or some act associated with the crime can be extremely powerful evidence for a prosecutor and to a jury. To finger an individual in court is in fact a true Perry Mason drama-filled moment. Realizing this, the United States Supreme Court and state courts across the country have established strict guidelines regarding police lineups. Hey, you might be thinking, just what exactly are those guidelines? In a two-page memo in 2017, the Department of Justice, under Deputy Attorney General Yates, announced department-wide procedures and guidelines for eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness identifications play an important role in our criminal justice system, and it's important that we get them right, said Deputy Attorney General Yates. With today's procedures, we're taking one more step to ensure that law enforcement officers obtain the most reliable evidence possible during a criminal investigation and that all Americans can have confidence in the fairness of our criminal justice system. Except in exceptional circumstances, agents should administer photo arrays using either blind procedures, where the administrator is not involved in the investigation and does not know what the suspect looks like, or blinded procedures, where the administrator takes steps to ensure he or she cannot see the order or arrangement of photographs viewed by the witness. In addition, the new policy stresses the importance of documenting a witness's self-reported confidence at the moment of the initial identification, reflecting a growing body of research that such confidence is often a more reliable predictor of an eyewitness's accuracy than a witness's confidence at the time of trial, as we'll talk about in more detail later on in our broadcast. The department's new procedures call on agents to document the identification either by video or audio recording the lineup, or by having the administrator transcribe the witness's statement as close to verbatim as possible. These procedures will apply to agents at FBI, Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, ATF, and the U.S. Marshal Service, and will guide federal prosecutors when deciding whether to charge a case involving an eyewitness identification. This is in conjunction with the Wade-Gilbert Rule, which was created by the Supreme Court. 
what exactly is the Wade-Gilbert rule, you may be thinking? Wade, from U.S. v. Wade, that we mentioned before, together with Gilbert v. California, created the Wade-Gilbert rule. Under this rule, the Supreme Court held that post-indictment lineups are a critical stage of the criminal prosecution, and the defendant is entitled to have their counsel present at critical stages under the Sixth Amendment in order to minimize the risk of error or abuses in the process, and to avoid the likelihood of legal error. Additional suggestions are incorporated to ensure the maximum reliability of a witness identification. A model lineup procedure was established, which is clearly within the various constitutional guarantees involved. They are as follows. 1. All accused persons should be brought before a magistrate for a judicial determination of probable cause prior to being placed in a lineup. 2. Once in a lineup, the accused should be requested to recite only neutral words not associated with the case. As an example, the police can ask the accused person to read from the sports page of a local newspaper. No request should be made to speak the words allegedly said by the culprit at the time of the crime. No questioning should be done unless counsel is present or a valid waiver has been made. 3. The utmost effort should be made to have persons of similar characteristics in the lineup. Prior to the lineup, the accused should not be identified as the person arrested for the crime. Both of these measures are designed to result in a reliable identification that would be as effective as possible at trial. 4. If possible, counsel should be present. A photograph of the lineup should be taken for submission to the jury as evidence of the reliability of the witness's identification. Last but definitely not least, if the accused is held after bail is set because of his lack of ability to make bail, no lineup should be held for other crimes unless sufficient evidence exists in the hands of police to constitute probable cause for arrest for any additional offense. Stemming from those guidelines, defense attorneys always must establish strategies for cross-examining eyewitnesses. They must make every effort to discredit eyewitnesses. The criminal justice system also recognizes the fallibility of eyewitness identification. Cases of mistaken identification are amply documented in the legal and popular literature. Hey, if you'd like to investigate further on your own, you can also see Gilbert v. California and Stovall v. Deno. Hey, let's tap the clutch and let's briefly talk also about traditional eyewitness identification practices and problems. How do these things take place? There can be a trickle-down effect, which can rapidly turn into a snowball and then an avalanche. It begins with a purposeful but casual indifference towards the accused, the assembly line justice mentality, where those who are charged with protecting the truth and justice become the very ones violating rights and abusing their power. Casual indifference on the part of the police, the prosecutors, the judge, and sadly, even the defendant's own lawyer. A look at how the typical lineup is conducted reveals more troubling detail. In a standard lineup, the lineup administrator typically knows who the suspect is. Research shows that administrators often provide unintentional clues to the eyewitness about which person to pick from the lineup. 
In a standard lineup without instructions from the administrator, the eyewitness often assumes that the perpetrator of the crime is one of those presented in the lineup. This often leads to the selection of a person despite doubts. In a standard lineup, the lineup administrator may choose to compose a live or photo lineup where non-suspect fillers do not match. Again, I'll repeat, do not match the witness's description of the perpetrator or do not resemble the suspect. This can cause the suspect to stand out to a witness because of the composition of the lineup. This unintentional suggestion can lead an eyewitness to identify a particular individual in a photo array or lineup. In a standard lineup, the lineup administrator may not elicit or document a statement from a witness articulating their level of confidence in an identification made during the identification process. That's a mouthful to ingest. So let me tell it to you again. In a standard lineup, the lineup administrator may not elicit or document a statement from a witness articulating their level of confidence in an identification made during the identification process. A witness's confidence can be particularly susceptible to influence by information provided to the witness after the identification process. Research shows that information provided to a witness after an identification suggesting that the witness selected the right person can dramatically yet artificially increase the witness's confidence in the identification. Therefore, it is crucially important to capture an eyewitness's level of confidence at the point in time that an identification is made. A witness often becomes more confident over time to where a shaky ID at the police station solidifies into a concrete certainty at trial. A review of 161 wrongful convictions found that 57% had not been certain during the initial ID, but had no hesitation when testifying much later at trial. This evidence would tend to indicate that an eyewitness's level of confidence in the ID at the time of trial is not a reliable predictor of their level of accuracy. Witnesses that aren't certain and are provided positive feedback and reinforcement about the perp selection, things like, hey, you did a great job, or he's a bad guy, we figured it was him, also become more confident about their choice even when they are dead, dead wrong. Eyewitnesses may be mistaken for a variety of reasons, perhaps because they have weak memories for the event or because they have been deliberately or accidentally subjected to investigative procedures that compromise the quality of eyewitness identification or some degree of both. Here's a crystal clear example of that. In August of 2019, when the police arrested a suspect in a string of bank robberies in Portland, Oregon, they took his mugshot and prepared to show it to witnesses in a photo array alongside of images of five similar-looking men. But here's the kicker. The suspect had at least half a dozen facial tattoos. But in reviewing the surveillance video footage and from talking to the bank tellers, the bank robber had none. Ah, uh, no worries, right? Nothing a little Adobe Photoshop couldn't fix. You know, I was not shocked to hear this because having worked so closely with local law enforcement for decades in my community, nothing, nothing that the police do or do not do in 2022 shocks me. 
From Officer Daniel Pantaleo choking to death Eric Gardner on the sidewalk of a Long Island street for selling Lucy's or loose or individual cigarettes from a packet, the exact same thing I know for certain and have seen a member of my extended family do in his bodega in the tri-state area. To Derek Chauvin's knee on the back of George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes, snuffing the life out of him, while other officers just stand around as if it were just another day at the zoo with traffic control. I was furious to hear that the largest police department in the nation, the NYPD, New York's finest, a place where I called home for a considerable portion of my life, on the regular, uses Adobe Photoshop to doctor up the filler photos in their photo arrays that they show to witnesses, and that this is pretty much common practice across the U.S. Sergeant Mary Frances O'Donnell, a spokeswoman, for the department said, all efforts are made to alter the filler photos, not the subject's photo. I say the police shouldn't be doctoring any photos, not a single one. The legal director of the ACLU of Oregon, Matt Dos Santos, agrees with me when he said, if you can't do a good photo lineup, the answer is not to change the photos. The answer is a photo lineup shouldn't be done. Changing the photo is unacceptable, and it shouldn't be done ever, even if it's a last resort in order to make the fillers look like the suspect. Silence is acquiescence. The things you can do with Photoshop are extremely powerful, and Adobe knows that. That software is the leader in its industry. Police officials in the City of Angels, Los Angeles, the Windy City of Chicago, and the City of Brotherly Love, Philadelphia, say they stay away from using Photoshop. Adding or removing a tattoo is something we do not do, said Detective Danny Moses, a spokesperson for the City of Baltimore Police Department. He went on to say, we would get killed in the courts as well as in the media. That's something we don't mess with, and rightfully so, I say. Finding filler photos with similar identifiable markings is the ideal solution. We want a true, fair, and accurate representation of the person. Then let the victim make their decision. Hey, let's again tap the clutch and address some of the causes. The study of the psychology of eyewitness evidence over the last 40 years shows that there are problems with the traditional eyewitness practices that increase the likelihood of wrongful identification of an innocent suspect. What are some factors that lead to false and misidentifications? Stress. While many people tend to believe that stress sharpens their senses, research consistently shows that people who are under stress when they observe an event are more likely to misidentify the culprit. Being a crime victim or suffering any criminal activity causes anxiety and stress in the witness. Also, a presence of a weapon. Eyewitnesses confronted by a weapon are apt to focus on the weapon rather than the person holding it. Also, the brevity of the incident. While observing a crime, an eyewitness often has a very short period of time to observe what's happening, let alone to remember specific details of the offender's appearance. Also impacting on the situation is the passage of time. Memories can fade or even change with time. <laughs> Sometimes I have a hard time remembering what I had for dinner the other night. By the time a witness actually gets to testify in court, it can sometimes be a year or more after the crime took place. The confidence level of the eyewitness. 
Eyewitnesses who express great confidence in their identifications are no more accurate than those who admit to uncertainty. Confident eyewitnesses sometimes have high error rates. Cross-racial identification. Eyewitnesses are less accurate when asked to identify someone of a different race. This factor affects members of all racial groups. There's also a pressure to choose. Eyewitnesses are more likely to make mistakes when they feel pressured to make an identification, even if they are told that they don't have to make a choice. Also, influence after the fact. Eyewitnesses are more likely to make mistakes when they rehash events with other observers. In these situations, witnesses may alter their memories so that they can be in agreement with others or participate in groupthink. Also, the concept of transference. Eyewitnesses may make a mistaken identification because they saw the person they identify on a different occasion. Also, the issue of multiple perpetrators. Identification accuracy decreases as the number of people involved in an event increases. Also, the absence of an employment boost. Eyewitnesses who regularly interact with the public, for example, store cashiers, bank tellers, are no better at making identifications than other people. So after all this, maybe you're asking what can be done. In the state of New York, in conjunction with the State Bar Association, the District Attorneys Association of New York, and the Innocence Project, a proposal was made that practices should be implemented into the legal process in order to help to reduce the chances that juries would be swayed by mistaken eyewitness or false confessions. Investigators would be required to treat the words of witnesses and suspects as if they were another kind of trace evidence subject to contamination. Witnesses would be shown photos of possible suspects by an investigator who was not assigned in charge of or handling the case with the goal of eliminating even inadvertent hints or clues about the quote right answer from detectives who might have a suspect in mind or have a vested interest in clearing a case assigned to them. Once an ID has been made, witnesses could be immediately asked how certain they were of the choice. This response would be recorded for all posterity and preserved for trial at a later date. Hey, let's tap the clutch and let's briefly talk also about some ways on how to improve the accuracy of eyewitness identifications. Innocence Project New Orleans endorses a range of procedural reforms to improve the accuracy of eyewitness identification supported by major law enforcement organizations and backed by 30 years of research. The core four reforms for eyewitness identification policies and laws are number one double blind or blinded administration and we talked briefly about this earlier a double blind lineup is one in which neither the administrator nor the eyewitness knows the identity of the suspect this prevents the administrator from providing inadvertent or intentional cues to influence the eyewitness to pick the suspect number two instructions Instructions are a series of statements issued by the lineup administrator to the eyewitness that deter the eyewitness from feeling compelled to make a selection. One of the recommended instructions includes the directive that the suspect may or may not be present in the lineup. Number three, composing the lineup. Non-suspect photographs and or live lineup members or fillers should be selected based on their resemblance to the description provided by the eyewitness as opposed to their resemblance to the police suspect. In addition, 
the suspect should not noticeably stand out from among the other fillers. And number four, confidence statements. Immediately following the identification procedure, the eyewitness should be asked to provide a statement in his or her own words that articulates the level of confidence in the identification made. It is important to capture the level of certainty at the time the identification is made because eyewitness confidence tends to increase over time. For far too long, video cameras were only turned on when a suspect was ready to confess, coerced, or otherwise. If truth be told, there would be no record of the hours and hours of interrogation that transpired before the confession. Was the suspect beaten? coerced, deprived of sleep, perhaps promised things that were never true, or what have you. Police should be required to videotape all interrogations of suspects in major felonies. Some police departments do video their interrogations, but the practice isn't universal across all agencies. It's precisely concerns over such reliability problems and their consequences which created the need for the defense counsel in some situations involving witness identifications. So you may ask, just what are the suspect's rights? The basic right is to have a counsel present at a lineup in accordance with the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The police can typically force someone who has been arrested to participate in a lineup. Judges don't consider this a violation of the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination because, in a lineup, suspects don't provide testimony as stated in U.S. v. Wade. But due to the implications of a police lineup, criminal suspects have a number of rights under federal and state laws. One of those rights clearly is the right to an attorney. If a suspect is in a physical lineup, he or she has the right to an attorney. A criminal suspect's right to an attorney does not begin at trial. Instead, the right arises during every critical stage, including in-person lineups. Now, there's a slight technicality to this process that's important to state, and it's a distinction that needs to be mentioned. A person's right to an attorney is not triggered at a photo array. When police are only showing a witness a photograph of a suspect or suspects. This right only extends to a person in an in-custody lineup. If a suspect had a lawyer and he or she was not present during a physical lineup, the lawyer can attempt to have the identification at the lineup suppressed from evidence. One reason why it's important for a lawyer to be present during a physical lineup is to prevent bias or improper procedures. A lawyer can put someone in the vicinity who has the suspect's legal interests in mind. The lawyer can help ensure that the suspect's rights are not violated during this process. Also, the freedom from suggestion. Another right that criminal suspects have during a police lineup is to be free from an identification process that is unnecessarily suggestive. If a law enforcement officer pressures a witness to identify a particular person in the lineup, the suspect's rights may have been violated. In assessing whether the lineup was unnecessarily suggestive, the court considers the circumstances leading up to the eyewitness identification. Those rights also include the freedom from substantial likelihood of misidentification. A substantial likelihood of misidentification can occur when all of the fillers look much different than the description provided by the witness, such as being of a different race. Also, suppression. The typical remedy for improper police procedure pertaining to a bad police lineup is exclusion of the witness's identification. A lawyer requests a hearing to suppress the identification 
identification. The suspect may have to testify to discuss the circumstances related to the identification. Such statements generally cannot be used against the defendant at trial. If the judge finds that the lineup procedure was not proper, he or she orders the identification to be suppressed. However, the eyewitness may be able to identify the suspect again in court if the identification is supported by other independent evidence. And the concept of show-ups. S-H-O-W-U-P-S. Show-ups. In some instances, law enforcement officers will take a victim or eyewitness to a location to see the suspect. This process is known as a show-up. Some courts have suppressed identifications that derive from such origins due to the inherent suggestiveness of them and jury instructions. If the eyewitness identification played a significant role in the case, a lawyer may be able to get a jury instruction regarding eyewitness identifications. Jury instructions are important because they are the last thing a jury hears before deliberating. Hey, by now you may be wondering which states have implemented these reforms. Well, 25 states have implemented the core reforms promoted by the Innocence Project, either through legislation, court action, or substantial voluntary compliance. These states are, and see if your state is included among them, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Georgia, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, North Carolina, Ohio, Oklahoma, Oregon, Rhode Island, Texas, Utah, Vermont, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. Witnesses are problematic for a multitude of reasons. Whether they see what they see is colored by implicit or explicit bias and or prejudice, or whether they simply are in error. Our mind can play tricks on us, but we owe it to a person that if we're going to take away their liberty and lock them up in a way that would be considered cruel and inhumane towards an animal, then we better make certain that we get the reasons right the first time as to why we're doing this. Far too many people have been affected and effected by this process, and we owe it to the truth to do better and be better in our processes as it relates towards equal justice under the law and seeking the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Conviction rates are not what's important. Clearing a case with the wrong suspect isn't a win. The prosecutor is an administrator of justice, a zealous advocate, and an officer of the court. The prosecutor's office should exercise sound discretion and independent judgment in the performance of the prosecution function. The primary duty of the prosecutor is to seek justice within the bounds of the law, not merely to convict. The prosecutor serves the public interest and should act with integrity and balanced judgment to increase public safety both by pursuing appropriate criminal charges of appropriate severity and by exercising discretion to not pursue criminal charges in appropriate circumstances. The prosecutor should seek to protect the innocent and convict the guilty, consider the interests of victims and witnesses, and respect the constitutional and legal rights of all persons, including suspects and defendants. Doing what is right, working the case until the true culprits are found and brought to justice, is what's important. You know, the strange irony of all this is that the modern understanding 
of the causes of wrongful convictions arise from the expansion of DNA testing about 25 years ago, which initially was believed to be a way of solidifying convictions by providing irrefutable proof of identity. While it has had that effect, it also revealed a startling range of errors that has led to wrongful convictions, including eyewitness errors, false confessions, and complaints of it being junk science. Hey, it is our hope that the research reviewed in this episode will be useful for a variety of purposes. One, advancing our scientific understanding of eyewitness identification. Two, informing policymakers, judges, lawyers, and police officers about policy considerations and practical aspects of eyewitness identification. And stimulating you to want to learn more about these important topics. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube and Instagram at Rizzo's Protective Group. We're very excited about being ranked 10th out of the top 35 criminal justice podcasts as ranked and listed by Feedspot. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to Feedspot at www.feedspot.com. And please, por favor, per favore, visit our friends at HTTPS colon slash slash newsly dot me newsly is an audio app for ios and android it picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice for the first time in the history of the internet the entire web becomes listenable you can browse articles from topics you choose and start playing Hey, stop scrolling, start listening. You can follow any topic, as specific as you like, from sports, science, to Bitcoin. It'll find you the latest articles and read them to you. Hey, it's as easy as that. And to top it off, they have podcasts as well. Explore trending podcasts from over 50 countries. Our podcast, Light em Up, is there too. I started using it as my default podcast app, and you can too. Download and use Newsly for free now from www.newsly.me or from the link in the podcast description liner notes and use the promo code LIGHTEMUP. And LIGHTEMUP in this case is spelled L, the number one, G-H-T-E-M-U-P. All one word. That's L, the number one, G-H-T-E-M-U-P. All one word. Hey, I want to thank my friends at Innisfree for their promotional products and underwriting. Their fresh-squeezed hydrating green tea loaded with amino acids and antioxidants help replenish and neutralize skin for that natural glow. Want to know the best part? Their tea is organically grown and chosen for skincare from 3,301 Korean native green tea varieties. The winning 1-2-3 punch combination consists of the youth enhancing serum with black tea. Then you just dap, 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 a little bit of the eye serum underneath your eyes. And finally, the enhancing cream. Oh my goodness. Like Muhammad Ali used to say, I'm pretty, I'm still pretty. They offer innovative beauty solutions for men, also powered by the finest natural ingredients responsibly sourced from Korea's pristine Jeju Island. Their proprietary extraction methods preserve the purity and potency of these wholesome ingredients from plant to bottle to your 
your skin, offering advanced formulas that safely address all skin concerns without the use of harmful chemicals and preservatives. With the wonders of nature at the heart of Innisfree, they take care to preserve and protect the environment in all that they do. We want to thank our friends at Innisfree for their promotional products and underwriting of Light'em Up.